talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Iceman and Firestar. amazing friends. Hello and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at Spider-Man and his amazing friends, an animated series first seen on NBC between September 1981 and November 1983. Technically, this places it somewhere between Hydra initiating their plot to cause a global economic recession and Carol Danvers breaking her driver's side front door and, you guessed it, there's absolutely no crossover with either of them. I'm Tim Worthington and we'll be finding out what I thought of Spider-Man and his amazing friends shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give his thoughts on Spider-Man and his amazing friends is musician Gareth Hirons. Gareth, where can people find you? They can find me uh, and my compadres at bandcamp.cobreak.com probably. We released a new EP this year called Scripts, which is available on 7-inch vinyl. Okay, so before we go any further, Gareth, what happens in Spider-Man and his amazing friends? Well, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar, who is a stand-in for the Human Torch, for reasons I'm sure we'll touch on, get into what I think I can best describe as poorly animated and badly lip-synced adventures, featuring a surprising amount of other recognisable Marvel characters. I think that's a pretty good summation, so you might have to sort of cast your mind back a bit for this but Gareth how much did you know about Iceman or Firestar or even Spider-Man before you very first saw this? Well I actually had a Spider-Man toy going back as far as I can remember sort of a bendy I would say about kind of nine inch tall sort of Spider-Man so I was aware of who Spider-Man was but not really any context for it so probably this cartoon was the first time that I've been following Spider-Man's adventures Iceman no idea and Firestar no idea turns out I was right to have no idea about the latter well well, yes, absolutely, because the first I knew about it was I was sort of Spider-Man crazy at that point because Marvel UK did do a Spider-Man title which had gone through various permutations. I think it had gone in as a publication a couple of times where they brought in other titles. There had been one to coincide with the live-action late 70s Spider-Man being shown on ITV, which then turned to the Fantastic Four for a bit when that late 70s Fantastic Four cartoon was on over here. And then it changed back to Spider-Man with an announcement that was going to be a new cartoon on the BBC with Spider-Man and Iceman and a new character called Firestar. It is interesting that the accepted story, and I'm not disputing this for a second, is that it is true that the rights of the Human Torch were tied up elsewhere. Initially, they wanted to do him as part of, alongside live-action Spider-Man and Hulk and Doctor Strange and Captain America, as part of that. It didn't quite work out. Apparently, they remade the pilot script of something called The Power Within with a completely different character. And also, he wasn't in that Fantastic Four 
cartoon was replaced by Herbie the Robot. But I find it hard to believe that they didn't consider from the outset having a female character as part of the trio. I just, I cannot see that. So it's one of those both things can be true situations. I completely accept they must have, but her power's different to the Human Torch as well. But at the same time, as I accept that, you know, she was a replacement for the Human Torch, how can she have been as well? Well, her powers are quite similar to Sunfire's as far as I can work out. And yeah, stay tuned because we're going to be meeting Sunfire in this cartoon as well. Yeah, it's a strange one about the Human Torch because the Human Torch that they wanted to use isn't even the original Human Torch. So let's not get into that rabbit hole. But yeah, for the same reasons that we got a glorified T-Bob in the Fantastic Four cartoon, we also get Firestar, which I think is a much better trade-off. Now, we'll get to Firestar's design in a bit and it will probably be in a fashion that could get me picked up by Gabby Hutchinson Crouch for the next series of Curiously Drawn. But suffice it to say that the character left enough of an impression to be one of the very few characters who've crossed from TV to comics rather than vice versa. So I think that's quite a good result, really, for what appears to have been a stand-in pulled out of the hat at the last minute. Absolutely. I mean, there is this long tradition of all the way from some characters that created sort of spin-offs in the 60s even found their way into the comic strips all the way up to, you know, the new Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the TV series are now part of the comic strip. But Firestar seems to have found an easier acceptance and become, I think, her origins or not her origin story is obscured now, but her origins as a cartoon character are kind of forgotten because it was very shortly afterwards. I think it was about 1985. They brought her in having been recruited by Emma Frost for some kind of mission, I think, and she just became a really well-accepted and really well-loved character. Most famously, I think, as part of the Marvel Divas, which is a bit of a contentious storyline where some people liked it and some didn't, where it's basically they show her, Monica Rambo, Felicia Hardy, who's the Black Cat, and Patsy Walker, who's Hellcat, sort of, you know, hanging out. They're not really doing superheroics in it. They're doing, basically, sex in the city. And she, obviously, is a huge part of that. My favourite appearance of her, though, is a very, well, relatively very recent series called You Were Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. Yes, I'm aware of it. I haven't actually read any of it. Well, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's a series where, basically, it retells a Spider-Man origin story, but from Mary Jane's point of view, done in the style of, I don't like saying this, but you know what I mean, like a girl's comic. You know, like a sort of romance comedy adventure comic. Yeah. And it's interesting because yeah. it shows everything from her perspective. So Flash looks like less of a, you know, thug. He looks more sort of vulnerable. Jessica Jones is shown as basically a complete eyebrow-piercing goth. She wasn't, but that's how Mary Jane sees her. And Firestar, who shows up occasionally, because obviously Mary Jane doesn't know Peter Parker's Spider-Man. She has a crush on Spider-Man and sort of watches him through binoculars. Sees this girl flying alongside him with sort of like welder's goggles and army surplus jacket on which probably isn't what Firestar was wearing but you know that's her thinking what's that skank wearing who's hanging around with my boyfriend <laughs> and you know it goes to show that a lot of the characters that are appropriated from spin-offs it's like they pick a lane for them and they stay in it which I've got no complaint with but Firestar has proved so adaptable and there's even a Lego figure of her now I mean that's the real clincher these days isn't it you've made it as a Marvel character if you get into the Lego we'll probably talk about her characterization later I did notice that I felt like a lot of the plots especially the ones that I've sort of watched for research and maybe I got a bad selection or something like that they did seem to feature Firestar as half 
of a failed romance quite a lot of the time. So she gets a crush on Sunfire, which obviously can't go any further. One of her ex-boyfriends, and it's happened to us all, hasn't it, when we're dating? Your ex comes back as a half-machine monster of some sort, you know. And the design of the character, which I did promise to touch on, this is the nudest-looking character that I think I've ever seen in a cartoon that wasn't nude. It's like she's wearing body paint. Now, I know a friend of ours who will remain nameless refers to Spider-Man and his amazing friends as Firestar and her amazing ass. But it's pretty objectifying by today's standards. I did notice, by the way, that Iceman is wearing ice pants. So the same cannot be said of him. I mean, I won't even get into how that works, but it did remind me of when this was on, you know, when it was sort of the big talking point in school. I remember people thinking they were clever. You know, the same sort of people say, how does Iron Man bend his legs? Well, it's nanotechnology, isn't it? Yeah, but how does he bend his legs? We're saying sort of, what happens to those big things of ice that Iceman leaves behind? I remember thinking even then, well, they sort of melt and the ground is a bit damp in some places. <laughs> They actually use that to track him in one of the episodes. They do, yes. Shows how much attention everyone was paying. But it's an interesting contrast. I mean, I'll come back to why I think this made it such a success because it really actually wasn't it still is in a way it was very different to i mentioned that you know i was getting the spider-man uk comic at that point and in that it was at the point where i think the hint is dropped at the end of spider-man no way home that that's where they're planning to go next where he's kind of sort of estranged from Aunt may he's scraping by as a photographer living in a really sort of rundown flat in the bad part of town he's having an on-off romance with the black cat who it's unbalanced to say the least. It's an on the back foot Peter Parker and on the back foot Spider Man in some ways, while dealing with some very realistic villains. It's mainly people like the Enforcers and so on, you know, who are basically just bad guys, they're not super villains. There's a lot of interaction with people like Cloak and Dagger, the Punisher, Iron Fist, and so, you know, you read in the comics, it's this quite grim Spider Man world, and on TV, it's actually quite upbeat, I would say, in comparison. Absolutely. Again, I was taken aback by the amount of other Marvel characters characters that appeared in it which I obviously wouldn't have noticed that much at the time like I say I, I knew Spider-Man I didn't really know anybody else but you know Doctor Doom Green Goblin featured highly as villains and as we'll come to and as we've already touched on with Firestar and Iceman you get what I believe is the first appearance under their name anyway of the X-Men yes and that does bring me on to one thing that I've never come up with a satisfactory answer to which is the opening titles for this are brilliant we see them transform into you know their super powered alter egos and they go off to fight initially sort of some kind of distant relative of Molten Man where obviously Iceman turns into ice and Spider-Man shatters him which is a bit brutal when you think about it and then Firestar does a sort of loop-de-loop around the Green Goblin and we assume knocks him off the Goblin Glider but then you see them in Doctor Doom's eye view running towards Doctor Doom who then sort of spin falls backwards into a web blasting as he goes (laughs) now it's not very in character for him <laughs> but that is there are some villains in this I mean well done to them for using them but they've had to tone down what they did I mean the biggest one is having done them very effectively in the Spider-Woman cartoon which hadn't been on that much earlier over here although that was on ITV and also around that time it is worth saying the 60s Spider-Man cartoon was still on ITV all the time 
And while that had aged well, it did still look a bit 60s. And this felt up to the minute at the time. But they have the kingpin in one episode of this who wants to steal something called the Omniblaster, which is a bit like a... It's like, you know, that toy from the 60s, the Johnny 7 22-in-1 rifle or whatever it was, where it has all these different weapons it can configure into. And this is, you know, it's got a thing that can melt through concrete. It's got a stun gun. It's got everything. He wants to steal it from a secure experimental lab where the government's holding it. Now, I am saying if the government had the Omni Blaster in 1982 at the height of the Cold War, they would have just marched out with it. <laughs> really? Surely even the Kingpin would look at that and think that's a bit much. But obviously they can't do usual Kingpin kind of antics with them, so they had to have him stealing a ray gun, basically. Oh, the Kingpin had absolutely my favourite line in the entirety of the cartoon. So in that episode, Pawns of the Kingpin, wonder who's in that? He's trying to steal the Omni Blaster, but he uses Captain America to do it. So they brainwash Captain America with Dr. Faustus's psycho discs, <laughs> which are already, you know, some of the greatest things I've ever seen. It's like a little disc that attaches to the back of your neck and then you can be... To be fair, the way that they show Captain America in it, he's not exactly hypnotised, but he's just been suggested to do stuff, I think, which is quite interesting in the way that usually, like, for a cartoon for kind of people of that age had somebody being sort of mind-controlled, they'd be all zombie-like and that kind of thing. But no, he's quite persuasive and that's how it works. But Dr. Faustus eventually, and very predictably, turns on Kingpin and tries to attach a psycho disc to him. To which Kingpin reveals that he has a special neck band <laughs> that protects him from it. And he just tears off this neck band with the psycho disc. I don't know why, it just absolutely tickled me. I'll tell you what, actually, it reminded me of an Adam West Batman kind of thing where the person just has the right ridiculous gadget for the situation. Well, it is sort of based on, I think it was in the late 70s, there was a series of comics called Spidey, which was, when I say it was intended for younger, it was as if Spider-Man was, you know, a character in the regular comic, if you see what I mean. They weren't simplified stories, but they didn't have a lot of the, you know, the elements about Harry Osborn having a bad trip and things like that. <laughs> but that was infamously where Thanos had a helicopter that said Thanos on the side. <laughs> and at the end, he got arrested by the NYPD. <laughs> they were just taken to prison. So it's got that same sort of sort of arm's length feel to, you know, how far the regular comics could go. They know their limits in this. Uh, where are we going? I'll go to Osborne's old factory. You take Osborne headquarters. And I'll try Mona's home. And guys, the goblin's planning to change everybody into ugly little green goblins. Yeah. I don't know. For Webhead, it'd be an improvement. Spider friends, go for it! Iceman, interestingly, I sort of blew hot and cold over, ironically, at that point, because hey. because of the eccentricities of Marvel UK, at the same time as the original X-Men were appearing as a backup strip in Spider-Man and in the Fantastic Four, the new X-Men were in something called the Mighty World of Marvel, which is where they basically put all the other new strips that, you know, weren't well-known enough to have their own comics. So, you know, it's where you get Cloak and Dagger and things like that. So the X-Men I very quickly grew tired of. 
off because they could be a bit highfalutin and a bit too miserable and moral delivering and also I think it's interesting look back now one of the reasons I didn't like Bobby Drake in the original X-Men comics because I found it quite annoying because he was a bit of a sappy over emotional bratty kid but thinking about it now I think what I didn't really have the sort of wherewithal to understand at the time was I don't think you're supposed to actually like any original X-Men because if you look at them you know you've got you've got him you've got a rich kid who's quite arrogant you've got a very psychologically messed up girl you've got somebody who's just too clever to relate to and yeah, basically can I say this in Cyclops you just got a tosser basically <laughs> but you know they are bound together and sort of bound to the reader by the fact they've got this stigma attached to them you know they're rejected by the rest of society so I think that was something that went straight over my head at that age but at the same time though Iceman for a long time had been in the Defenders who I absolutely loved because he grew disillusioned with the X-Men who so joined the Defenders and he was kind of a different character in that so I never quite knew where I stood on Iceman but you are right this was the very first appearance apart from the original X-Men sort of appeared as the allies for peace in the Submariner cartoon in the 60s but this is the very first representation anywhere and we get the classic X-Men and the new X-Men a couple of times as well yeah yeah including a very Australian Wolverine <laughs> you want a uh, piece of fruit <laughs> <laughs> which is the second best line in the whole series. <laughs> so it's not, that's not something Wolverine did that often, is it? No, no, if it, only he'd had a special neck band as well, then, you know, he'd have been put <laughs> over the top there. I found Professor X's voice very odd as well. It, it was very camp and like almost more British than I was expecting. But yeah, it's interesting to see them on screen for the first time. They do get a fair bit of screen time as well, because there's at least two visits to the X-Mansion, one of which actually establishes Firestar's origin story, and the other of which is the again shockingly named the x-men adventure it's one of those brilliant ones where and this happens literally every time this particular thing is shown on screen they go into the danger room and nothing can possibly go wrong oh something has gone wrong and i thought it was an interesting lineup in that as well because i, mean, I love a bit of danger room action i'll be honest about that but you know as well as nightcrawler you got kitty pride storm colossus they were brand new characters at that point but also thunderbird who was only an occasional x-man i thought it was really interesting that they chose him yeah what this struck me as was like almost a blueprint for a holodeck episode in next generation as well where nothing can possibly go patrick wrong patrick stewart link as well well there we go but yeah thunderbird was a good addition that was also the only one that I watched where I was aware of the Stan Lee voiceover. Now, it may have been in some of the others, but I maybe didn't notice it. But from reading about it, it looks like they brought in Stan Lee to do voiceovers for season two. And then they dubbed him over season one doing some voiceovers as well because it was so well received. But I think that they weren't present on them over here, actually. That would make sense. I don't think they are on Disney+. Plus. I think that's a really good addition to it as well. Obviously, kind of Stan Lee's been involved with most sort of on-screen Marvel stuff. I'm not sure whether this was the start of that happening, but I think it was certainly a good idea to bring in a narrator, especially because, and this is one thing that maybe time hasn't been kind to it on, it does appear to have been made on the kind of shoestring budget where you will be looking at characters not doing anything for quite a while because that means they don't have to animate as much. Yes, it does look like quite a fast turnaround, but like you say, on the other hand, as far as I can tell, it was the first 
project that Marvel actually had active involvement in. I could be wrong. It could possibly be there was some involvement in the 60s Spider-Man cartoon as well. I don't 100% know about that, but that wouldn't surprise me. But Stan Lee actually personally approved the scripts for this. And, yeah, there was a lot of... The use of other characters is interesting because it isn't just in the way even Spider-Woman, which was only a couple of years previously. You know, you get people like, well, like the Kingpin, like Dormammu would turn up. But that was it. They turn up and there'll be a story with them and that'll be it whereas here you've got recurring other superheroes recurring villains there's indications that different people have met each other previously they've all got different relationships it's the first time in the spin-off that it's actually alluded to the Marvel Universe as it is on the printed page and I think that really does go a long way this is a good point to mention one of the original characters in this who has made some interesting appearances who is Video Man <laughs> It was created from arcade game Bytes by Electro and obviously is some kind of, you know, tying in some way to that paranoia there was in the early 80s about arcades and video in general. People thought that the concept could get you somehow. Genuinely, I can recall politicians on the news talking about how all this data is in the air from arcade machines. <laughs> there was that panic going on, but Video Man has made some interesting appearances, most recently in the prison in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> I burst out laughing when I saw that, and I realised no one else in the cinema was laughing. I had a lot of fun with Video Man, actually, because I completely get that. It was buying into the kind of paranoia about that at the time. So, yeah, Electro is using this video game character to video man to steal space alloy for what I've just put down here as reasons. <laughs> And Electro's plan is actually pretty good. He's put a fair bit of thought into it. But, like, there's this strange bit where Aunt May's TV breaks at a time when they're all going, I have no idea who could be responsible for this. And that somehow leads Peter to realise that it's Electro. It's a completely, like, unearned twist. They're just going, like, we have no idea who could possibly be behind this heavily electricity-based venture. But the TV's broken. Oh, hang on, it must be Electro. But then they go and ask their supercomputer, and it already knows that Electro made the game. So given that they have a supercomputer for exactly this kind of thing, why didn't they ask it in the first place? Well, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, supercomputer is worth mentioning because that's another thing where people say, oh, how did they get that computer? Well, it's actually explained. It's given to them by Tony Stark after they help him with something, but crucially, not by Iron Man. Because that's another interesting facet of this. They meet Tony Stark and I don't think they actually encounter as Iron Man. I could be wrong, but I'm fairly sure they don't. They meet Matt Murdock not in the guise of Daredevil. And so, you know, there's that whole universe aspect to it as well. The idea that people have their normal lives, which isn't often shown in the other earlier... I say animated Marvel adaptations, it's not really shown in the live-action ones either prior to... In that case, I'm saying it's prior to Blade, really. I think it captures that really well, although we have omitted one other character who made the jump from this into the comics. Miss Lion, Angelica's pet dog. Ah, see, I was going to mention Miss Lion, but I, I I kind of didn't want to. It's very much a comedy dog trope. A dog capable of waving a flag, though, I noticed. Yes, yeah. I was quite impressed with how little they feature the character in every episode, and, and seemingly less and less as time goes on. You go from, like, kind of a minute of the comedy dog on screen to, like, several seconds, which at least shows that they had a bit of self-awareness about it. But yeah, I think, from what I've read, that was meant to have been influenced by Challenge of the Super Friends and the DC cartoons. There was at least one comedy pet in those, and they were like, ah, that'll be a great time 
time filler. But to be honest, they had enough going on. They didn't really need it. They had comedy pets and pretty much everything, to be honest. And also, you know, you get things like you mentioned DC and the new adventures of Batman in the late 70s that have Batmites to fulfill that role. You know, things like Seven's Arc, Seven and One, Rover One in Battle of the Planets. It was just a standard issue thing around then. I think, and like you say, I'm impressed at how little they use Ms. Lion, who doesn't really get to save the day by sniffing things and so on, which would usually be the case. I think we narrowly avoided a Godzuki situation <laughs> with that one. She has had her own strips, though. Great, I'm not interested. <laughs> The other characters we get, I mean, you've mentioned Captain America and the X-Men already. Thor appears in a very Asgard-heavy episode, as does Loki. Black Knight, who's a really... That's not just, you know, who can we have in this? That's really sort of thinking outside the box there. Doctor Strange, the Submariner, Shanna the She-Devil. Bruce Banner, who they aren't aware of as the Hulk, I think, at first... And then villain-wise, you know, you've got people like Swarm, Sandman, Mysterio, Dr. Octopus, Craven the Hunter, Magneto, even the Marvel Dracula, as in Marvel's actual iteration of Dracula, makes the papers, and is quite faithful to the comics sort of rendition of him as well. Not that much later, in the sort of 90s Spider-Man cartoon, they weren't able to show Morbius as a proper vampire he had to have those little suckers didn't he the fact that they were able to get away with dracula at an earlier stage that's quite impressive well talking about getting away with there were two episodes that i think we cannot avoid talking about one is i'm gonna say this has just become more unfortunate over time there's not that much outright offensive in it, but the episode with Sunfire now has a warning at the start on Disney Plus about outdated stereotypes. It's not what you might be visualising, but he does seem to think a lot of things are honourable. Yeah, so I saw the warning and I thought, this might not be as bad as I think it's going to be. But about 45 seconds in, how could I put this? Plinky music starts playing and we see a man in samurai armour. And at this stage, it's almost like Krusty the Clown flapping his dick. But it doesn't stay that bad for long, I suppose. I did feel like Sunfire, the character, we were talking about his uncle there, who is trying to take over the world with his revived fire beast. But Sunfire himself, kind of much safer depiction, I would say, except that he just seems to have to do little things that remind the audience he's Japanese every 20 or so seconds. And that's the only reason I can think of that he had to demonstrate Aikido at dinner with Aunt May. Well, I mean, we could debate the right to wrongs of that for a long time but there is one episode that has completely disappeared quest of the red skull now you've told me why this was previously and it was borne out in my inability to actually track this down yeah basically unless you've only seen avengers infinity war and endgame and just think he's a sort of haunted floating red skull on the planet <laughs> atoning for his past misdemeanors the red skull was an actual nazi character during the second world war he was their sort of demonic chief scientist and basically this episode sort of very much continues in that vein there are a lot of swastikas in it the phrase heil hitler is actually used even for 1981 i think that's pushing it well i mean i have two words for you and they're both hello i think these days you definitely wouldn't get away with that and for good reason but back then i can imagine it was probably less frowned upon we're on a relative scale there though i think 
Oh, definitely, definitely. And this is children's TV as well, I suppose. But generally, it was, and I say this in a positive way, it was safe. I think that's why the BBC repeated it, you know, genuinely around 12 times, I think, because it was that perfect balance from their point of view between what their audience actually wanted and what they thought their audience should want. There wasn't anything in it that would scare the horses next to, well, next to horses galore, I suppose. But it was ideal. You got the entertainment you wanted, but there was nothing in it, really, that could cause that much distress or bother or offence, really. Absolutely. It wasn't necessarily kind of fear-inducing, but it was actually packed which was a great combination of qualities to have watching it back obviously like i say it's showing its age now not just in ends of certain cultures it is very much a product of the animation standards of its time get it out quick and sell the toy line but you know what it's packed with interesting characters it's packed with interesting relationships between the characters like you said kind of you know recurring villains and pre-established friendships and animosities it's full of good sound design most of which is ripped off of other stuff there's plenty of star trek sound effects in there for instance video man certainly transports in at one point and yeah it's pretty good fun to be honest i would imagine if i was the age i was when i was watching it then today it would still be a worthy watch i think it's very well regarded now i think people look back on it very fondly and i think you know people can be sometimes with reason but critical of earlier iterations of you know what just marvel but any franchise you know you only have to look at how droids and ewoks are treated by star wars fans now but this seems to get generally very positive notices very sort of you know this is incredibly good for what it is i think for a generation it was very exciting to see because it wasn't the sort of thing you saw every day on children's television especially over here and it had a lasting impression i mean it had many lasting impressions on people i'm going to deny outright before anyone points this out you might be aware of this but i went to a comics themed fancy dress party went as wonder man I deny any and every rumour that I persuaded somebody who didn't know who Firestar was to go with me as Firestar. Okay, okay. I believe you. Thousands wouldn't. You may detect some lasting affection for the character there, shall we say, but... I just I think it's great I think it's really watchable even now I think even the episode the Stan Lee voiceovers they don't feel as clunky as that you know just stating it like that might make it sound yeah and I think it's a step up from the DC cartoons that had preceded it at the very least now I've not seen any of 1981's Spider-Man the show that preceded this directly preceded this which we fact. got after it over here which was very confusing <laughs> what happened to his amazing friends we all thought but yeah like I say I think that as much as it is clearly a product of its time, it's something that's well worth revisiting if you're in the mood for some brain-off action, essentially. Okay, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now, and I couldn't find anyone who was in this who's also been in the MCU, even Frank Welker, believe it or not, is the voice <laughs> of Iceman. So, especially for you, Gareth, Peter Cullen, who was the voice of Bruce Banner Mysterio in The Red Skull, was also the voice of Optimus Prime in Transformers the movie. So who was best? I mean, really, I've got to go for Optimus Prime, haven't I? I can't see the Hulk with the Matrix of Leadership anytime soon. And also, he beats the Red Skull because he's actually still shown in the cartoons he's in. (laughs) (laughs) What a switch that is from the Red Skull to Optimus Prime. They never made a Transformer of that, and I wish they had. (laughs) Gareth, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you very much, Excelsior. He's the right colours, actually, red and blue, so, you know. If you've enjoyed this, 
Don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.